If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Westminster Abbey has hosted royal coronations since the medieval period. And of course, the next monarch to be crowned there will be King Charles III. So we thought it would be a good time to cover this iconic building in our Everything You Want to Know series. David Musgrove was joined by Professor David Carpenter, who's just completed a two-part biography of King Henry III, the 13th century king who had the church rebuilt. Professor Carpenter began by telling Dave about his own personal connection to the Abbey. I grew up at Westminster Abbey. I arrived there in 1951 as a four-year-old boy and where my father was appointed as a canon of Westminster. And in some ways, it was my home until my father, who was by then dean of Westminster, left, retired in 1985. I'd left home by then, but nonetheless, I still had a bedroom in what was then the the deanery. So, you know, um, I do feel quite close to the Abbey. I should add that I was uh, also at uh, tented as a small boy in the 1953 coronation. So um, I, I remember that. And what was that like? I have episodic memories of it. I, I, I sat with my grandparents high up in the north transept. And w- I do remember the actual moment when the crown descended on the... It was placed on the Queen's head. I remember telling myself, remember this, remember this. And in my mind's eye, I can still see the crown uh, going down. Fantastic. So it was a, an amazing experience. Right. So, so basics on Westminster Abbey. Uh, what and where is it and when was it built? Okay. So where is it? it it's on one side of Parliament Square, just opposite the um, the Palace of Westminster, opposite Big Ben, Victoria Tower, just by the river. Uh, when was it built? How far back does it go? Well, legend has it that it was founded in the reign of an Anglo-Saxon king called King Siebert in the early 7th century uh, after an, a miraculous appearance by St. Peter. And it is a, a church dedicated, a monastery dedicated to uh, St. Peter. Um, There certainly was a church at Westminster in late Anglo-Saxon England, but the real start 
becomes with Edward the Confessor, because Edward the Confessor had a palace where basically Parliament now is, and completely rebuilt the church, uh, built a great, great monastic church there, uh, and um, you can see that on the Bayer Tapestry. And he also richly endowed the abbey. So it's a Benedictine abbey uh, by this stage with land and rights. So that was the first great phase, and the second great phase comes with Henry the Third in the 1240s, 1250s, when he. He completely rebuilt the church of the confessor and created the great church we have today. And Edward the confessor, of course, famously died in 1066, the chap who preceded the year of great change in the Norman Conquest. Yeah, so he died on the 5th of January, 1066, followed by Harold, who in some ways usurped the throne. And then we have the events of 1066. I notice actually in the questions, was there ever an Eastminster? I mean, why Westminster? And the reason for that is the contrast with the the great church, great minster at St. Paul. So that's the in like the Eastminster. And so the great church, great minster in the West is Westminster. And that, that's why we have Westminster. Uh, not that St. Paul's ever became called Eastminster, but it's to distinguish the, the church in the West from the great church in the East. Brilliant. You've slightly answered this one from Alex Bowers and Wendy Phillips. What was there before the Abbey? You've talked about its sort of early origins, but, but sure. Is it... Well, there's some reason to think that the the site of the Abbey was originally an island in the Thames, the island of Thorny. It was called, and so um, it, it's possible that, it, that we have to think of the Thames as much wider than it was before it was embanked, and so on. It, it may have been quite sort of wet, marshy ground, and the the actual site of the abbey had once been a sort of semi-island in the Thames. And well, there would have been nothing there before, as far as we know. Probably the uh, abbey was built there because beside the Thames, from probably before Edward the Confessor had been a royal palace. So it was always a very royal uh, church here. A, a church of monks, of course, hence West Monasterium is the latter, the monastery in the West as well as the minster in the West. And Frank Bertrand has asked, why was it built to begin with? Is that because it was in a very good location? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, London? I think the clearest thing is that, again, Edward the Confessor, why does he completely rebuild it, create the great church you can see on the Bayer Tapestry? Um, that would be because it's bang next door to his his favoured residence in his palace at Westminster. Okay, let's go on to uh, Edward the Confessor then, because we've got Sean Hall there who asks, is there any record of Edward the Confessor reviewing his finished abbey? Well, I think he would have reviewed it very much because it was finished not very long before his death on the 5th of January 1066. So clearly, uh, and as he died at Westminster, and as you can see him being born to his tomb in the abbey, again on the Bayer Tapestry, there's extraordinary vivid depiction of his body being born there. Um, clearly, he, he did inspect it before he died uh, and then was buried there. And I think in the biotapestry, there's, there's a bit where uh, people have interpreted it as someone putting the finishing touches on the abbey as, as it's shown as well. Oh, so. I didn't know that. Well, that would be absolutely right, yes. Uh, Rebecca de Figueredo wants to know, was it standing alone away from other buildings or was it part of a busy area? And I guess she's talking about the earlier. Sure, sure. Well, I think this is actually a very important thing to think more generally in that today the area is dominated, I think, really, by the um, House of Parliament, Big Ben, Victoria Tower. And in a way, the Abbey is also shrouded by a 
St. Margaret's Church. But you've got to think that in the medieval period, and especially going back to 1066, it would have dominated the area completely. And I think that would have been true until the sort of, you know, the development of the current House of Parliament, because the Westminster Palace, the Great Hall built by William Rufus, which of course is still here, the Great Hall of Westminster, the Abbey towered above that. And so I think as a statement, particularly when Henry III rebuilt the Abbey, we might come on to that, you've got to think of it completely dominating the Westminster Scene In a way, it doesn't do um, any longer. Now, uh, the excellently named Hannah May Sunshine wants to know, why was it chosen for the location of coronations? And I suppose we need to answer the question, when was it chosen for the yeah. location of coronations? Uh, I think this goes back again to 1066, in that Edward the Confessor dies at the Abbey on the 5th of January, 1066. Harold is immediately crowned, and you can see that on the Bayer Tapestry again. Um, there's no specific reference to the fact that Harold was crowned at the Abbey, but almost certainly he was. And then, of course, after the Norman Conquest, we do know that William the Conqueror was crowned at the Abbey. And from that point onwards, the tradition is set. And every king and queen of England who has been crowned was crowned at the Abbey. And the importance of that is, I think, very well shown with Henry III, because when Henry III came to the throne in 1216, um, in the middle of a great civil war, his enemies controlled Westminster, so he couldn't be crowned there. So he was actually crowned at Gloucester. But that was thought somehow wrong, and so there was a second coronation in 1220 at the Abbey. And it just shows how already by 1220, there's a very, very strong feeling that kings and, well, there are no queens at this stage, but kings of England need to be crowned at Westminster Abbey. And of course, uh, the, the monks of Westminster are absolutely right on with that. They're determined to preserve this this privilege. Now, before we get on to Henry III in more detail and, and his abbey, is there anything left of that first abbey building from Edward the Confessor's Oh, time? yes, there is. Under the ground, various excavations at the abbey have shown the foundations of the Confessor's Church, but also part of the cloisters at the abbey, the dark cloisters, go back to the Confessor's time. And there's also an old door in the passageway leading up to the 13th century chapter house, which has been dendrochronologically tested. And it suggests it's a door which, again, goes back to the time of the uh, confessor. So whereas I'm much more interested in the chapter house um, because uh, I'm a 13th century historian, uh, when I my Anglo-Saxon colleagues come with me, the, the door is the only thing they really want to look at. The famous old door, indeed. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You've answered this a bit, but let's go into a bit more detail. So why was it rebuilt and when? So it's Henry III in, in the mid-13th sure. century. So to understand why Henry III decided to rebuild the abbey, we need to go back to Edward the Confessor because the monks are very, very keen to have a saint in the abbey. And so they decide to try and make the confessor a saint. Some reason to think he was a deeply pious man from contemporary biographies and so on. Uh, They succeed, the monks, and in 1161, the pope canonized Edward the Confessor. Now, initially, it was a bit of a flop, really, because there's very little evidence that many people sort of uh, came to the Abbey and made donations because of the Confessor. Kings of England don't seem to be hugely interested. King John confirmed the manor of Islip, where the Confessor had been born to the Abbey in the 1200s. And it looks like a pious gift. But actually, if you look at the financial records, you see that actually John charged £200 for the privilege. So, you know, he's not actually particularly devoted to the confessor. And the same was true of Henry III in the early stages of his life. But when we come to the 1230s, between really we can date it very, very precisely. I've written a long, rather exhausting article on this. Um, Everything changed. And Henry suddenly, within the course of a few years, adopts Edward the Confessor as his patron saint. The reason for that is, I think, pretty clear in that he'd gone through a very difficult time politically. Um, His ministers had let him down, plunged him into a civil war, been threatened even with deposition. And it's at that point, 1233, 34, 35, the monks of Westminster come to Henry, who, of course, spends a very great deal of time at Westminster because they're no longer continental possessions to take him out of England. And they say to him, look, place your trust not in temporal ministers who've let you down, but in an eternal saint who will see you right, who is a saint of mighty power at God's right hand, who will bring you success in this life and give you a safe passage to the next. And Henry comes to believe it, believe it profoundly. And one reason for that was, of course, that immediately there was success because one thing Henry desperately wanted in 1235-36 at this crucial moment is is to find a wife, to get married. And it's a monk of Westminster who goes out to Provence and brings back Eleanor of Provence as Henry's bride. And of course, clearly, it's the confessor who has brought all this about. So Henry 
from then onwards, I mean, it's absolutely central to Henry's being, his devotion to the confessor. And I, I think there's no parallel with that to any other English king or any other continental king, really. The, the patron saint, Louis IX of France, you know, Saint-Denis, doesn't have nearly the same power or centrality to him as the confessor does to Henry. So why then the abbey? You've got to think then, how does sanctity work? The first thing is you have to be sure, of course, that your saint is indeed at God's right hand and can intercede with you with God. Henry had no doubt about that. But the second thing then is that you have to persuade the saint that you are indeed devoted to him. There's no point just going around saying, look, I've adopted the confessor of my patron saint. The confessor up there will say, well, prove it. You know, what's the proof that you've really uh, adopted me? And of course, the way you prove it is in alms and offerings to to the shrine of your patron saint. But Henry decided to go even better than that. He thinks, what could I do most of all to persuade the confessor? I'm totally devoted to him. And this might seem rather odd, but what Henry thought is, I'll pull down the church, now rather old-fashioned church the confessor built, and build a magnificent new church in its place. And at the same time, I will translate the confessor's body from its old shrine in the old church to a magnificent new shrine in the new one. And basically, that's what Henry decided to do from the 1240s onwards. So the great heart of the church we see today was built between 1245 and 1269 by Henry at his expense, or in a way at all our expenses, because he simply used the revenues of the kingdom. Probably about two years annual revenue was the cost. He could have built probably three or four, four or five of the great castles, which Edward I ultimately used to hold down Wales uh, with the same amount of money. I think money on the abbey was much better spent. But he also drives forward, and this is where we have these wonderful letters of Henry III, all preserved on the chancery role, which it shows him driving forward the work, but also very, very interested in the actual details of the design. So I think we've got to think of Henry and his master mason very much conceiving the, the design of the abbey together. Do we know much about the, the actual process of demolition and construction and who the master mason was? We do. Um, uh, and this is where we've got these amazing accounts um, which survive for the, the building of the abbey. Oh, and one of the questions here I remember says, who were the people who built the abbey? Uh, I don't want to just hear about boring kings and queens. How were they paid? What were their lives like? Guess the historical record is pretty thin on that. Not at all. It's very, very abundant on who the workmen were. But starting at the top, we know who the master mason was. And his name was Henry of Reims. And there's no doubt at all he came from Reims. And although he may have been an Englishman who'd worked at Reims, and perhaps if we go on to discuss the detail of the design and what Henry was going to do, but it certainly owed a great deal to Reims and the great French cathedrals. But going down the, the social scale, I mean, during the height of the work in the 1250s, we know that four or 500 people were working every day on the abbey. And we've got details of who they were. They were people polishing marble. They were carpenters. They were stone layers. They were craftsmen doing the carving of the capitals. They were laborers. And we know how much they're paid. I mean, a laborer would be paid probably about sort of 
penny halfpenny a day. Uh, at that point, there are 240 of these silver pennies in the pounds. So penny halfpenny, tuppence a day at most, which is enough really to buy your daily bread. So the, the lowest level, laborers are on subsistent wages. But higher up the social scale, uh, you, you know, these people might well be paid you know, the, the amount of money to, to live very, very comfortably. Okay, so you've just answered Adam Powley's question there. So, so right, thank yes. you, Adam. No, a um, very good question. So let's go back to the design a bit. We're quite interested in coronation and, and sure, how sure, that fits sure. into it. Was the design influenced by the needs and requirements of the coronation process? I think it was very much influenced by that. Can I approach that a bit more gradually by asking what was Henry trying to do? Uh, so he's rebuilding the church in the confessor's honour. And the primary aim is simply to make this the most magnificent church in the world. So the confessor will be all the more pleased. And to do that, on the one hand, uh, and in English terms, this was strikingly new, it's the height of the abbey. So internally, it's 104 feet from the floor up to the top of the vault. And that's 20, 30 feet higher than most great churches in England. So it must have seemed stunningly new. And that was done by French constructional technique, flying buttresses and so on, which came from Reims and the great French cathedrals. Also from Reims, the design of the windows... Um, of course, Reims is also a great coronation church, so we'll come on to the coronation, the design of the windows, two lancets, the rows above, and the sort of chancery east end, which is in the circular, the radiating chapels, all that design came from Reims. So it's a very, very French church in a way. Uh, I mean, Henry just wanted what was best. It didn't matter where it came from. But in a way, it's also a very English church. Because if a French designer had seen it, a French master mason, which I don't think Henry of Reims was, I think he's someone who worked at Reims, they would have said, yes, it's all very well, you know, it's, it's gone quite high, 104 feet. But our cathedrals have gone much higher. I mean, Reims, 123, Amiens, another 10, 15 feet above that. So, Henry would have had a reply to that. He said, yes, we haven't gone as high as you. And I think that was partly the constriction of the site. But our church is far more magnificent. And that's where you have to look at the decoration of the abbey, which is very sort of indigenous English. It's the, the, the wonderful Purbeck marble columns, quite different from, you know, the French cathedrals have nothing like that. It's all in the same rather drab masonry, if I may say that. Um, there's the wonderful carving of what's called the diapa, which is formalized roses covering every circle. There's the patterning of the vault. All these things made the abbey far more magnificent in terms of its decoration than the great churches in France, or at least that's what Henry would have claimed. So that's the first thing, just to make it magnificent and to make the confessor the more pleased. And of course, central to that also is the new shrine of the confessor. But of course, and this is where we come on to the coronation, Henry doesn't want all this just for himself. Of course, he wants the confessor to help him in this life get into the next. But he's also offering the abbey and the confessor to the kingdom, to his people uh, from which they can also benefit. And that's where Henry, of course, knows this is a great coronation church. This is a church for the great, great services of the 
the kingdom. And the design, I think, was very influenced by the needs of the coronation. And you can see that in a series of ways. The first is the great length of the transepts, because, again, that's not found in the French cathedrals at all, and they're wider than the transepts of English cathedrals as well. And the transepts are the great arms of the church, which form the cross either side of the central crossing, central crossing where the coronation takes place. But, of course, the great length of the transepts means that you can house ever so many people in them. And in many past coronations, not in fact at this one, of course, stands are built up in the transepts to provide a sort of galleries for people to look down. And when I was a little boy at the 1953 coronation, I was high up in the stands of the, the north transept. One of the things I remember is someone placing a top hat on one of the, the, the ledges beside me. So that's the one thing, the length of the transepts. The second thing, which was, I think, very much related to the to the needs of great services in the coronation, is that the abbey has what's called a galleried triforium. And that's the central part of the abbey, which in the abbey, there are these great galleries running all the way around. And very recently, they've at last been open to the public because that's where the, the museum is there. Now, structurally, you don't need them. You could just have a blank wall and no gallery. To have them is huge extra cost because you have to have an external wall with a whole external windows and everything. And you can imagine perhaps the master mason, Henry of Reims, saying to Henry, well, do you really want to have these um, triforium galleries because it's going to add a great deal to the cost and the time? And of course, Henry said, of course, of course, we must have them. It will make the abbey so much more grander. But also, of course, it's where hundreds, thousands of people can go when there are great services, in particular coronations. And at coronations in the past, uh, 1953, there were lots of people up in these galleries uh, looking on. So that's the second way in which the design was related to the coronation. The third way comes to the amazing pavement before the high altar. Now, this pavement was installed we know from an inscription in 1268, and we know from other evidence as well. And it was brought all the way from Italy, from Rome, or, or all the materials to construct it by a family called the Cosmati, who were a family who specialised in mosaic pavements and tombs, using the stones really from the ruins of the buildings of, of ancient Rome. And this pavement was installed in 1268 in front of the high altar. Now, it's recently been argued by Claudia Bolgia in a fascinating article that it was modelled on the pavement in Old St. Peter's. Rome, and this is where we have the coronation, on which the emperors were anointed. And so the abbey pavement makes reference to Rome, the papacy, and the anointing of emperors. And so what much more suitable for equally the anointing of English kings. And the coronation chair is placed not actually on the centre of the pavement, but is placed just at the top of the steps, um, and then the pavement goes beyond it. The ritual of the coronation is played out on this pavement, brought from Rome with reference to the papacy, but very associated with anointing at coronations. So that's the third way in which the abbey's design is related to the coronation. There's also one other way, Henry will be very disappointed about this because it no longer really resonates, and it's this. So the coronation is played out 
on and in front of the great pavement. Beyond the pavement is the high altar. And then beyond the high altar is the shrine of the confessor, which was also a work of the Cosmati. Now, in Henry's day, if you stood on the pavement, you looked above the high altar and you saw towering up the shrine of the confessor. And so, in other words, the confessor dominates the whole proceedings of the coronation. And so, you know, Henry is saying, you know, the whole future of the, the monarchy is going to be guarded and guided by what he hoped would be England's national saint. Now, of course, this didn't work. And there were two reasons for that. The first is that the confessor never became England's national saint. And of course, who did? And it was someone with no connection of England at all. It was St. George. And I'm afraid George had far more appeal to sincere, athletic, militaristic Englishmen than did the confessor. You can see that actually in the, in the most famous images of the two of them. Because the most famous image of the confessor, which Henry had portrayed everywhere in his um, churches and chapels, is of the confessor giving a ring to a pilgrim who turns out to be St. John the Evangelist. It's an important episode because it foreshadowed the confessor going up to heaven and St. John getting him there. But it's not terribly exciting looking. And now you compare that to the most famous image of George, which of course is killing a dragon and rescuing a maiden in distress. I mean, one doesn't resonate, the other did. So one reason why the confessor was eclipsed was that St. George had taken over in the next century as England's national saint. The other was what happened with another very, very different king from Henry III, Henry V, uh, the victor of Agincourt, most famous and most militaristic of all English kings because when he died in 1421 he was buried in the abbey and behind the shrine of the confessor and a great chantry chapel was built to you know to celebrate masses for his soul but because that caused so much noise a great screen was built behind the high altar to sort of shield the the main part of the church from the Chantry Chapel of Henry V. But of course, that screen to this day hides the shrine of the confessor. So the coronation and all great services are played out on the pavement and in that area. You can't see the shrine of the confessor at all. So Henry would have been devastated by this. And um, whereas so much of the abbey is still there as Henry intended it and is suitable for the needs of the coronation, this final sort of coping stone of it all, the climax of it all, um, the confessor, is, is, is not there or doesn't preside over it in the way Henry would have hoped. Um, that is fascinating. So it's kind of purpose-built for, yeah. for coronations in a way. It sounds like it was designed sort of for the spectacle, right, for people to see what was going on. Absolutely. But you mentioned uh, noise then, so acoustically. I was just I was listening to, uh, to another podcast about Notre Dame, about the rebuilding of Notre Dame, and they were saying they were trying to recreate the, the medieval acoustics of that, right. of that building somehow. I, I just wonder whether, whether you've got a sense about whether they thought about the acoustic power of the church when they were building it in Henry's time. Do you know, I can't answer that question at all. I haven't the foggiest idea whether that would be the case. I mean, on a slightly different note, of course, what we don't know at the Abbey is the stained glass. 
And it may be the abbey was much darker than it is now. If you go to Reims, where a lot of the stained glass survives, you know, the, the east end of Reims is really very, very dark. So it may be the visual effect was different. But of course, that relates to another thing, which is candles. I mean, Henry surrounded the shrine of the confessor with hundreds and hundreds of candles, and the whole of the abbey would have been lit up by candles in a way, of course, it simply doesn't anymore. And that would have created a fascinating, I think, sort of luminous effect with perhaps the stained glass windows and everything. So the effect might have been different. So that's visually the effect might have been different. Um, acoustically, I've no idea. No problem. Just quickly, what architectural style is the Abbey? Does it have a does it have a name? Does it fit into? Yeah, a I mean, one? I think it would be called a High Gothic style or Early English, uh, it's the 13th century Gothic. Right. Let's move on uh, in time. We've got uh, Layla Chandler asked this question, and we had a similar one from Gareth Short. Oh yeah. Who wanted to know what happened to it during the dissolution of the monasteries? Yeah. Uh, was was it all destroyed? Well, uh, the great substance of the building was not destroyed at all, and that's why it's still there. But of course, much was destroyed. And the first thing um, dismantled at the Reformation was the shrine of the confessor. And fortunately, in the 1550s under Queen Mary, quotes Bloody Mary, the abbey was restored briefly during her, her reign, the restoration of Catholicism. The monks then under Abbot Feckenham, they reassembled the shrine. The bits of the shrine must have been there. And so that's how the shrine base is still there. And actually the confessor's body was clearly not disposed of, but was kept somewhere. We don't know where. So the confessor's body is still there in the shrine base. But of course, the wonderful golden reliquy in which the body then resided before the Reformation, that's gone entirely. And over the years, I suppose the greatest damage has been done by all the subsequent tombs in that they destroyed a large part of the wall arcade and so on. But on the other hand, they are some of them works of art. Whereas the great substance of the abbey has remained the same inside. Uh, I'll come back to the outside in a second. Basically, all the, the subsequent tombs have completely altered the ground floor level of the, of the abbey. The outside of the abbey, sadly, the outside has been completely refaced. It must have just decayed and so on. And um, there's virtually none of the original 13th century outside um, surviving well, survives entirely inside, but not outside. Would it have been one of these brightly coloured? Uh, it might well have been. Yes, no. The, the statues might well have been, and, and that's where the abbey suffered much less well than the great French cathedrals, where the wonderful sculpture on Reims, Amiens, Chartres all, all survives, and some of the painting survives too. There's just some places in the abbey where the original painting survives, in the wonderful roof bosses, in the centaurs uh, fighting dragons and so on in what's called the moonlit room of the abbey. They do survive, but no, none of the external sculpture survives. That's partly the, going back to the stone in which the abbey was built, that it was built partly, and this is shows again a very international church, it was built partly in stone from Normandy, from Caen in Normandy, the great quarries there. It's easy to ship stone by sea. And that stone it has survived very well inside and you can still see it's all as sharp as it ever was. Whereas a lot of the other stone came from quarries in Kent, Rygate. And that stone, like a bad tooth, has decayed much worse. And you can see sometimes a shaft here in Constone and then a shaft in Kentish stone. And, you know, one is sharp in the lovely, slightly pink 
cornstone uh, and then the Kent stone is sort of decayed, withered. And it may well be that a lot of the external sculpture was in um, Kentish stone, unfortunately. And that may be a, a factor in its um, loss and disintegration. Luke Gouchy wants to know, was it damaged in the Great Fire of London, 1666? Um it wasn't damaged at all in the Great Fire of London because London didn't extend, or the fire didn't extend as far as Westminster. But it was damaged in the Second World War. And the Abbey was very, very lucky to escape. I think it was the same night that bombs fell on Parliament and a bomb fell on the central lantern, the part between the two arms in front of the Cosmati pavement of the high altar. But fortunately, what it did was just bring all the sort of tower area down and it collapsed in the central area and it just burnt itself out there. So the rest of the abbey was preserved. But you can see photographs of this huge mass of the roofing of the central space down in the area beneath what's called the lantern. So the abbey was very lucky uh, to survive that and that was the main damage done in, in the war. There's a question here, how much has it changed in the last few hundred years? So I suppose how, how different is it from... You've talked a bit about the internal sure, changes. Sure, sure, sure. Well, of course, the main external change were the addition of the towers. So the two great white towers at the west end of the abbey, which are, in a sense, its most famous iconic visual um, representation, they are actually 1720s, 1720s, 1730s. You can see that actually from the clock, which has only got one hand. Early clocks did only have uh, one hand. So they're early 18th century. And so so that was the most important change. I mean, since then, of course, throughout, um, you know, monuments have been put up to the great and the good in the Abbey and sometimes less good. I think one of the most important things which happened in, in recent years has been the opening up of the Triforium Galleries. And that's where the Abbey's museum is now. And that does give the public a wonderful view of these extraordinary galleries created by Henry III, as I've said, probably for the needs of great services and, and coronations. Kirsty K. Jones wants to know who was the first person to be buried in the Abbey. Do we know well, that? I, I can't really answer that question. In the, I think the first known person to be buried would be Edward the Confessor himself. And we can actually see him be buried in the <laughs> Abbey on the Bayer Tapestry. But before that, I think lots of people must have been buried in and around the Abbey. And of course, the monks are buried in and around the Abbey all the time. But the first known person, I think, would be Edward the Confessor. Following that from Kat Coven, I'm not sure if there is a number that can be given, but do we know how many people are buried there in total? The answer to that is no, because after all, you've got to think of all the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, thousands of monks over centuries who would have been buried in and around the Abbey. I mean, it, it, it runs into hundreds, if not thousands. And Katie wants to know, are they still burying people there today? The answer to that is, I think, no. But most people who are buried, uh, well, they're not buried, but ashes are still placed. And in fact, when my father died after his retirement as dean, I mean, he his ashes are placed beneath the pavement in the nave where deans are are buried. Well, not buried, where their ashes are, are placed. So, yes, people's ashes are still placed in the Abbey, but I don't think there's been a burial in the Abbey for a very long time. I honestly don't know when the last was. 
Jill Tank wants to know, she's read somewhere that King James moved the resting place of Mary, Queen of Scots, to lie near Queen Elizabeth I. Is that is that true? That's completely true. Um, of course, Mary, Queen of Scots, was executed at Fotheringay, and that was where her body lay until her son, James, came to the throne. And what he did was to move her body from Fotheringay to the south aisle of Henry VII's chapel, where he built her a magnificent tomb where you can see it today. And Queen Elizabeth lies in the north aisle of Edward the Confessor's chapel, equally under a magnificent tomb. But it's often said, and it's true, that the tomb that James made for Mary, Queen of Scots, in some ways, it certainly reaches much higher and looks in some ways more imposing than the tomb of Queen Elizabeth in the opposite aisle. So that's completely true. Joe Tyre, really good question. What's the most unusual or unexpected object that's been discovered within the Abbey? Well, I've been thinking about this one, and of course, my Anglo-Saxon friends would say the door, mm. <laughs> the the door which goes back to um, Edward the Confessor's time, if not earlier. I mean, I think one of the most poignant things, of course, is the casket again in the north aisle of Henry the Seventh Chapel, um, which is supposed to contain the bones of the princes in the in the tower. Yeah, well, that's a that's a that's a whole different story. Yeah, um, so we uh, we won't go into that. No. Um, Katie and, and quite a few others want, want to know about how much it costs to maintain it per year, which is obviously a, a current question. Uh, I don't know if you know the answer to that, but I wonder there's probably something underlying that about sort of funding and repair and maintenance sure. over the years. I think that's a more, a more general thing about the great English churches, the great abbeys and cathedrals, and the contrast with France in that the great abbeys and cathedrals of England, there is a, an emphasis, a necessary emphasis on payment to go in and go round. I mean, nearly all preserve a place for private prayer where you don't have to pay. And of course, you don't have to pay if you go to the services. But you do have to pay outside services, outside private prayer uh, for for going round. And that's a big contrast to the great French cathedrals where there's no emphasis on getting money at all. And of course, the reason is that the great French cathedrals, great French churches are owned by the state and the church is just allowed to use them. I, I'm not sure what the, the precise arrangements are, whereas English cathedrals are still owned by the Church of England, which receives no kind of subsidy from the state in maintaining them. And so they have to get money. And uh, of course, that caused a great problem during COVID when people couldn't go, you know, and the finances of lots of the great um, cathedrals and the abbey were badly hit by that. Hmm. So, you know, it's a question, do you want the state to own the great abbeys and cathedrals of England and then perhaps you go in free um, or uh, do you want to pay less taxes and the church has then to charge you for going in? Hmm. I mean, clearly there must be a lot of repair and maintenance required. Yeah, no, it's hugely costly. Don't forget these great cathedrals have got an abbey, so have got often maintaining a choir. So they have to subsidise a choir, and, you know, which is a very expensive thing to do. And, well, of course, the actual maintenance. I mean, when I was growing up in at the Abbey in the 1950s, there was a huge appeal, I think in about 1953-54, to raise money to really sort of complete the cleaning of the inside of the Abbey and to restore it um, structurally. And I remember then that the appeal was a million 
was it a million pounds for a million people that the, the idea was to try and get a pound from a million people, which is a good thing in a way, you know, try and get everyone to um, contribute. But um, since then, of course, a million pounds would not go very, very far. What are the key moments in the story of Westminster Abbey, would you say? Yeah, I think the key moments clearly were the Confessor's Church, the death and burial of the Confessor, 5th of January, 1066. The next would be the canonization of the Confessor, uh, 1161, and he was translated to his new shrine two years later in 1163. And then the, the third key moment was clearly in general, the rebuilding of the abbey by Henry III between 1245 and, and 1269. There would be two structural key moments after that because Henry didn't finish it. He built, you know, the main body of the church, but he left it attached to the nave of the confessor. And it wasn't till the 14th century that the nave was pulled down of the confessor and the rest of the nave was built. And I think one of the great tributes to how successful Henry's Abbey had been in terms of its design was that the new nave simply imitated the design of the the Henry III part of the abbey, which is very unusual. I mean, normally speaking, you know, if you build a nave in the 14th century, it has 14th century architecture like at Canterbury and at Winchester. But here at the Abbey, is deliberately not brought up to date. It imitates the design of, of Henry's church. A rather nice thing was said about the architect, Henry Yeavely, that he was original enough not to seek after originality in his work. So that would be the next thing. And then I suppose the final thing structurally would have been the Western Towers in the early 18th century. Obviously, constitutionally, the Reformation is the huge divide, um, whereas before it is an abbot and, and monks, afterwards it's a dean and a chapter of canons who run the abbey. So, I mean, that obviously is a, a gigantic divide. Okay, finally, whenever I've been to the Abbey, it's, it's kind of an overwhelming place to visit. There's so much to see. Your eyes are constantly yeah, yeah. darting over the place. What are the things that y you would say you really shouldn't miss if you, if you well, do Well, I the think Abbey? the Abbey as a whole, really, and I, I think I would urge people there's not in any way decrying the very fine sculpture and the historicity of a lot of the ground floor monuments. I mean, every one of those replays careful consideration, looking looking at the history of the people there commemorated from the earliest times to the you know, poet's corner today with monuments to um, Ted Hughes, Philip Larkin, and so on. But I would urge people to raise their eyes above that and just take in the wonderful church that Henry III has created. That was David Carpenter. Henry III, Reform, Rebellion, Civil War, Settlement, 1259 to 1272, will be published on the 23rd of May by Yale University Press. We'll have David back on the podcast soon to discuss that book. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. <laughs> <laughs>